When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bloom, who, among other things, authored How I Accidentally Started the 60s, which, before I start blabbering, because I have a terrible habit of doing this, how about you introduce yourself? Because once I get started, I don't stop. Well, let's see. I'm Howard Bloom. You got that right. Um, I'm the author of seven books. The second book was the subject of a symposium thrown by the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and they brought in people from the State Department, the Energy Department, DARPA, IBM, and MIT. And then there's something I should never repeat in public because it sounds horrible. But uh, Channel 4 TV said Howard Bloom is the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century. Um, and uh, Gear Magazine said he may just be the new Stephen Hawking, except he's not just interested in the physical universe. He's interested in the human spirit. So, uh, and I run four space committees, and, and there's a film on me, a 66-minute film that's won two awards, and and the list goes on and on. I'm doing 16 projects at a time right now. You are you are the living madman. And <laughs> to what, the best of my ability, Tommy. What I like most about everything is your your intellect is apparent from the first two pages of the book. But what I like most about it is obviously you're aware of him as Timothy Leary read your book. Right. To me, it reminded me of the journey of, of Baba Ramdas, Richard Alpert. In his, right. in his, it it mirrored the same thing of the the journey outwards to to what he would what Ramdas would call it to find it. It's always right. just around the corner. It's a little right. if we can just it's right there. I'll be happy when yours is the same. But instead of it, you're looking for Satori, which right. Buddhist enlightenment, the peak, the oneness, pure actualization, and yours is the journey through all these things trying to find it and it's like looking for your keys and then you finally realize you have them in your pocket you <laughs> what a good analogy you, well i was i for some reason all my reading about zen buddhism um it drew me to the conclusion that there is you know the pilot light in a gas stove so it drew me to the conclusion that there's this thin blue flame of spontaneity somewhere deep inside of you and it flares up with a concept an idea an insight and then that concept is run through a makeup department a clothing department it's dressed so that your friends will respond in a certain way to it they will not cast you out um they will hopefully admire you for it and it doesn't get into the stage of conscious and verbal self until it's gone through this vast makeup process. And in fact, um, I'm not a drug person. I, I don't drink coffee. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke marijuana or any of that stuff. But when I was 19 and seeking Zen Buddhist Satori, I was operating on the assumption that in order to see the infinite and the tiniest of things, you have to be able to experience every single extreme of human emotion in any culture anywhere on this planet. And so one of the ways to carry out this way outside the bounds 
exploration was this new stuff that had just appeared on the street called LSD. And another thing that had been on the street for who knows, five or six years or something like that, peyote. And in fact, one day laying on a floor, staring at the ceiling with great big windows overlooking the San Francisco sky, um, I felt I saw that thin blue flame. And I saw that spontaneous thought go through the makeup department. Um, and I saw, of course, what you're seeing when you're having hallucinations is a difficult thing to determine, but I saw the very process that I was working to undo. Um, but, okay, there are two poems that inspired a lot of this. I hit them when I was 16 years old. One was by T.S. Eliot. It was called The Love Song of Jail for Proofrock. The other was by Edna St. Vincent Millay. It was called Renaissance. And the love song of J.L. for Proofrock, in essence, says, if you have anything heroic to do in life, anything you think will define you, anything you will, anything you will think will draw um, a young men or women, the sex of your choice, um, to kiss you at your feet, you have to start it now. You have to start it today. You cannot put it off until tomorrow. You cannot put it off until next week. Because once you put it off for the first time, you will keep putting it off. And then one day you will wake up and realize that the life force um, to do that thing so essential to you has gone. And your possibility of ever doing that thing has disappeared. So if you have something heroic to do, start it now. And the second poem, Edna St. Vincent Millay, Renaissance, says to just what I told you a minute ago, to see the infinite and the tiniest of things, you have to be able to stretch your empathic powers to feel within you every extreme of human emotion, including emotions from cultures very far away from your own. And so I set off in search of those two things. When my parents finally let me out of the house, I wanted to drop out of school in my junior year of high school and, uh, and get a motorcycle and ride it across the country to California from Buffalo, New York, my hometown. My parents were shocked by this. I mean, the phrase dropout had not been coined. And and nice Jewish boys um, do not drop out of high school, much less college. Well, my, uh, my, my high school English teacher talked me out of it by saying, if you want to run away from home, fine, I'll put you up in the lumber camp in Oregon. Well, the last thing I wanted was to be in a room with a bunch of guys with smelly armpits. That was not my idea of adventure, not at all. So that scared me off from dropping out of high school. But when when I was uh, put on a train to take the three-day and three-night trip to Portland, Oregon, I was finally free of my parents. And uh, eight weeks before the end of my freshman year, even though I was in the top 10% of my class, at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, I dropped out to seek Zen Buddhist uh, Satori. And how I suddenly started the 60s is the, is the tale of that. And it's, it's, uh, I, I'm going to have to say this carefully at the risk because, because you, you're the legend. You're the, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a 30 year old sitting here with a camera, not entirely sure what I'm doing. Um, it's, you know, I was never a good student in high school. I got to college and 
kind of got the bejesus scared out of me when I realized I was, I remember my dad dropping me off on my 20th birthday, my sophomore year, and him just kind of saying, kind of uh, uh, kind of nonchalantly, you got three more years left to the real world. And it just, <laughs> like a splinter. Right. I realized I was like this whole partying, sitting at the pool, drinking beer, going to class hungover. Like, it's cute and funny now. It's not going to be when I have to go flip burgers and I don't want to flip burgers. Right. And I kind of had a mental crack and I started studying nonstop. I mean, around wow. around the clock. Amazing, Tommy. I don't mean, mean kind of did well. I mean, right. 4.0s for six semesters, published research in aquatic toxicology, scored the That's top amazing. on the MCAT, gotten to medical school. That's astonishing. And I got out. And I realized I wasn't quite happy. And I had been listening to some Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and Alan Watts lectures for a couple of years at that point. I meditated every day, not because I was searching for something, but because I used it tactically. When I would, I'd studied organic chemistry for 90 minutes and then I'd meditate for 20 because it allowed me to kind of gather my thoughts, clear myself, and then do another 90. I didn't drink, right. didn't smoke. So unlike you, I did it as a as a tool and unintentionally I started to learn more from that tool than the actual studying I was doing. I was going farther and farther inside. Right. And I was a despite going to private Catholic school for 12 years, I'd become a raging atheist. I was, you know, pre-med physics, it's all just matter and energy and there's no meaning to right. it. And I had all these weird kind of contradictions I had to face because as I was meditating and going inside every day, I was experiencing these states of peace and bliss and empathy that I couldn't explain. <laughs> I couldn't explain. Right. And I was like, what the hell is this? So at the end, literally the day after I graduated college, I was I decided that I needed to know. And there was a quote I had seen by Maya Angelou right before I graduated that said there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story. And That's interesting. That's a very interesting quote. And it just sat in there. And I was like, what, what am, am I supposed to be a doctor? Right. And so scared shitless. I went out to the woods and I, I took some psychedelic mushrooms with my friend uh -huh. and we sat in a field for seven hours. And in that moment, I saw that the question kind of arose, why can't you be happy with work? I love to work, no matter what it is. Right. I love to teach myself graphic design, I'll make this. Right. I'm going to get guests, I'm going to get Howard Bloom, I'm going to get a guy that walked on the moon. Why can't work be loving? Why does it have to be study, 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 it's got to be painful? Why can't right. And... In that sort of moment of bliss, I'm going to find it all out. A couple months later, my older brother committed suicide. Oh, my God, Tommy. And I imploded. I Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Couldn't handle it. Which way was up? Still an atheist, but now I got nothing to lean on. Let's, you know, right. implode, go nuts. Decided not to go to medical school. Smoking, drinking, gaining weight. Just nothing going for me. And I moved home in 2016. And right before I moved home, I had become suicidal. And that's when I oh, decided I needed to move home. Right. But before I did that, I decided that I needed kind of, I didn't know what the idea was, but I've, as you so uh, beautifully worded it, you have to know all the ranges of emotions. Right. Well, I had, I had experienced bliss through meditation. I got into medical school. I had the girl, like I had experienced the highs. And right. I figured, well, my logic was if I'm, gonna commit suicide and you know i'm gonna go face the great beyond that's more scary than anything in this world so clearly i should make sure i'm okay with whatever this world has to give so i decided to take what terence mckenna would call a heroic dose of mushrooms with oh my god with a heroic dose of lsd right oh lord together together well my logic was is i didn't want to do this but if i couldn't handle that how can i handle whatever's on the other side. Right. So I did that and sat on a waterbed for about 14 hours. Amazing. And, uh, at, at the peak of it, uh, I realized that if I quit now, then there would be 0% chance of it ever getting better. Right. If I kept going, it might take 20 years, but it could still get better. So I called my mom the next morning said, I need you to come get me. This is why. Parents came and got me. Beautiful. I moved home. I was home up until three weeks ago. I was home for almost five years. Wow. Did therapy. But the point of saying all of that is, is by experiencing these realms of, of insanity to the absolute limits, I kind of lost all fear, which led me to, if you have something to do, pursue it now. Not at 7 p.m., 6.16 right. p.m., pursue it now. If I want to tell Mr. Bloom that very personal story, I'm going to tell it to him now. But that is what has given me, for lack of a better term, actually, well, the, your book's written. I know you're, you're not offended by language. For lack of a t better term, gave me the balls to be like, I'm going to start a podcast. I can do what Joe Rogan does. Right. Why not? I'm going to make my own hoodies. Why not? I'm right. going to email Howard Bloom. Okay, I've got 5,000 subscribers. That's next to nothing. I don't care. Mr. Bloom, how you doing? I'm Tommy Kier. Pursue it all. And I know I'm sitting here, I'm just pounding this story into your head. But at the end of your book, you, I, I felt like I had written it. I felt like I was hearing myself talk to me. All of your things about Satori is here and now. Go out for it. Go scare the bejesus out of yourself. Learn what you like, despite that acid and, L and and shrooms. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I, I don't right. do anything anymore. I, I just don't need to. But it has, you know, I think of, ironically enough, I think it was Goethe said, I'm listening to a book about Hitler's drug use. Right. But there's a quote, and it's voluntary dependence is the highest state of man. And... I look at that as a, it doesn't have to be a drug. Is it just, as you said, Sisyphus? To, or, to give yourself a goal every day and do right. it forever. And, right. you know, I'm not really sure why I told you all that, but I, I felt that I needed to tell you all that. I'm not sure why. Right. It'll make sense in hindsight. 
right that is where i am in life right now i that's astonishing i do a so what seemed to be day. what seemed to be your next steps my next step honestly so people have asked me this before what is the goal of this well one like we just said a sisyphus thing I love a good goal. I love adding more podcasts every day. Go farther, farther, farther. Big picture, you know, more than just the ego. I want to make money. I do. I want to. I want this podcast to be well known. I do. I want to get enough money that just like Elon Musk, you know, co-founded PayPal, but he used that money, you know, basically an online credit card money transfer thing. He used that to found SpaceX. I want to do something completely unrelated to this podcast. I want this to be my money-making vessel. I want to, because I don't think they're going to get public uh, funding, I want to dump money into MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Because That's interesting. It gave me, that experience gave me the light to not just realize I didn't want to go to medical school, but a couple of years later, the realization that, hey, suicide's not the way out. And I always think, what if that was available to my brother? You know, right? What if that wasn't available to me? How many people are on the edge, and they, to get shrooms, you got to get it from your long-haired friend that wears a weird Rasta robe, and you're just like, screw it, I'm out. What yeah. if you could go get it from a physician? What if you could go right. talk to a physician? Um, but that's that's my long-term goal for this podcast. I don't know how we well, we flip this on to me. I want to talk to you, but <laughs> well, well, sometime you ought to interview my friend Dorian Sagan. Okay. Dorian Sagan is Carl Sagan's oldest son. He's the author or co-author of twenty books. Um, his insights are brilliant. Um, I'm concerned about him because he's gone off on this psychedelic thing. He's a, he tried to introduce me to people be, or the person behind maps at one point. And, but I'm afraid he's gone too far into it. Okay. You know, any good thing in excess is a poison mm-hmm. and that he may, he, he's got this wonderful, fantastic mind and that he may be destroying yeah. that mind. I don't know. Nonetheless, he is very into this world. He and Daniel Pinchbeck, who's the author of Breaking Open the Head, who's another friend, a distant, well, he's not a distant acquaintance. He's a friend of mine. So those are people who are very into this. But I arrived at this kind of thing. You know, I dropped out of Reed College and I spent, um, I haven't counted the amount of time out on the West Coast hitchhiking, riding the rails, and people started to follow me. Because even though I had no answers, I was just seeking Satori with everything in me. Apparently, the passion with which I was seeking it looked like an answer to other people. So they were dropping out of their jobs and and hitchhiking and riding the rails. And we ended up in a big pink condemned house in Berkeley, California, three blocks from the university campus. Um, Naked all the time, never wearing any clothes. Well, eventually, I ended up back in... Buffalo, New York. I went home just to visit my parents. I hadn't seen them for a year, um, which everybody, the hobos that yeah, I was yeah. riding the rails with, the policemen who picked me up and then wanted to adopt me, um, they all said, how long has it been since you've seen your mother? And when I told them, they were horrified. Um, so I went back to Buffalo and my former French teacher, seeing how lost I was, sort of adopted me. And I moved into her home for a while 
And she was the one who taught me the lesson of the myth of Sisyphus. And the story of Sisyphus is Sisyphus has done something horrible to offend Zeus, who was a very easily offended guy. And, um, and so Zeus punishes Sisyphus um, by giving him a rock, a round rock, to roll up a mountain and deposit on the peak. And every day, Sisyphus rolls that rock very painfully up the mountain until he finally gets it inches from the peak. And then it slips out of his hands and rolls back down to the bottom. And the next day, Sisyphus has to do it again. And what my French teacher explained is Camus interpretation of the myth of Sisyphus, which is the gift in life is not achieving the goal. The gift in life is trying to achieve the goal. It's the path to the goal that carries all the riches, not the achievement of the goal. So I tried to find an artificial purpose for myself. Um, and the easiest one was college. And I went back to NYU and like you, I mean, the first two semesters, um, I got four A's and a B and I was terrible. I had never paid attention in school, Tommy. I had never cared about school, um, at least not in grammar school. I just read, I read two books a day and that meant I had to read one under the school desk. So I paid no attention to my teachers whatsoever. And now for some reason, having that B offended me. And so I tried to figure out how to stop getting Bs. And I realized something. I was reading that when I was doing my homework, I was reading the textbook first and my notes last. And I realized I need to reverse that order. The first thing I need to study is the notes. Why? Because in the notes, I have the opinions of my teacher. And my teacher will only give me a B if I understand the stuff in the textbook, but not what he or she told me. If I parrot back what he or she thinks are his brilliant ideas, I will get an A. So that simple reversal in order to uh, satisfy the ego of my professors changed everything. And for the next three years, I got straight A's like you. And then there came the last day of school. And I'd had this artificial purpose for four years now, and I had no purpose anymore. So I, went, I was taken to a Country Joe and the Fish um, concert by a friend from across the street who had helped found the beat movement. And uh, her husband was the guy to whom Allen Ginsberg, the poet, dedicated the poem Howl, um, and which was the great poem of the beat generation. And I had no purpose in life anymore. I had no rock to roll up the mountain anymore. And I sat there with a great big bottle of Valium and was contemplating suicide. Um, so I've been through that too. But a strange thing happened that summer. My dad, my mom had always, everybody had known in Buffalo, New York, I was going to be a college professor from the time I was 10 years old. And my mother was very proud of that. My mom had scholarships at college and she wasn't able to go because her family didn't have enough money um, to fill in the blanks from the scholarship. And um, so she was very happy with me going into academia. And my dad was not happy. He ran a tiny little hole in the wall liquor store that became the biggest liquor store in Western New York State and is now an institution in Western New York. And um, 
and my dad kept talking about the real world and i and i had gotten fellowships at four different schools in what is today called neuroscience and i was i accepted the one from columbia university and then i had a choice during that summer between diving into the real world and continuing in academia and i had this vision of grad school as auschwitz for the mind yeah because <laughs> i had been after trying to understand among other things the ecstatic experience um the experience that you were alluding to when you gave me that quote from goethe about the ultimate satisfaction as being caught up in a part as a part of something bigger than yourself i wanted to understand that experience both as a personal ecstatic experience and and as a social force because that's what makes us molecules and the forces of history that desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and that emotion that sucks us out of ourselves up into something higher at certain moments in our lives and i realized in grad school i was going to get nowhere near that i call that finding the gods inside of us i was going to get nowhere near the gods inside of us i'd be giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for a college credit and how many of those 22 students sitting in a room filling out a questionnaire are going to go into the ecstatic experience and are going to touch the underside of god or whatever it is um none zero i'd be cut off from the one of the major experiences i wanted to understand and it's from a scientific point of view and i had an opportunity to go into something i knew absolutely nothing about popular culture and why did i know nothing about popular culture because i was unwelcome in any social group in buffalo new york from the time i was four years old um and uh god i'm losing my thread here but um the kids wanted nothing to do with me and they if they did anything with me it was used me as a target yeah um that was the only way i got their attention and i didn't want it yeah. that way um so um popular culture was the culture of the kids who used to beat me up i wanted to have nothing to do with it so while they were listening to elvis presley um i was and and chuck berry i was listening to rachmaninoff beethoven bartok and stravinsky so the least likely place for me on the planet was popular culture but remember you go to extremes mm -hmm. in order to expand your understanding especially your empathic understanding and i went into pop culture and it turned out to be a gold mine for me and it brought me into the very land where the gods inside come alive where the experiences that i have been seeking are alive the most and, and there's one experience i have to tell you to give you an idea of the gods inside of us in high school i was just as unpopular as i had been in grammar school even though my parents sent me to a small private high school in the hope that they would find a school in which i could engage um and the kids used the class president the class vice president the class secretary the class treasurer as popularity positions the most popular kid in the class got um named president the second most popular kid was vice president the most popular girl was a secretary and the most popular jew was treasurer <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
Um, so obviously I wasn't going to get any of those positions as the least popular kid in the school. But when it came to functional things, actually getting something done, then the, the popular kids wanted nothing to do with it. It was a responsibility. It would take them away from their drinking. Um, and at which they really competed with each other yeah. to see who could collapse and and uh, go into a total puddle first. Um, so they elected me in my junior year the head of the student or the head of the programming committee. Now we had every school day, five days a week, open with a school assembly, and. Um, that meant I got to MC all five of those school assemblies, which was terrifying at first. And I got to program two of them. Well, one day the juniors came to me and they said, we're having a dance. Could you advertise it for us? And they didn't understand how ironic that statement was. If there was a party of any kind in Buffalo, New York, anywhere, especially a dance, I was in cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Utah. Um, and yet they wanted me to advertise their dance. Well, my parents, every two years, my parents would try another trick to normalize me. Because here I was like a little Martian scuttling across the face of the earth. Um, and one year it had been dance class. So for an entire year, I went to dance class once a week. And I couldn't learn the box step. I couldn't learn the foxtrot. I couldn't learn the waltz. And no girl wanted to dance with me. I was always alone, except when the dance teachers took pity on me and danced with me themselves. And even then, they were endangering their toes. Um, so um, I can't dance. But I put a piece of music on the hi-fi system. And I went out to center stage. And I started moving. And moving in ways apparently no one had ever seen before. It, apparently it looked like a Looney Tune drawn on a night when Chuck Jones, the guy who drew all the Looney Tunes, had just dropped LSD. And I, yes, and I saw, and it wasn't even that. What you just did was more uh, codified, okay. <laughs> uh, more conventional than what I was doing. So I saw the faces of the audience. I saw their eyes widening. I saw their pupils dilating. I saw their faces melting. In particular, I saw the face of the girl who hated me the most with her eyes just widening, her face melting. And then it's as if all 350 kids melted into a giant blob of common energy. And that blob, like an amoeba, reached a pseudopod out to me, reached a tunnel out to me. I had an out-of-body experience. I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place, or so I thought. And I saw that energy go through me as if I were an empty pipe, reach someplace around my head, become utterly transmogrified, and channel back down through the empty pipe of me to the audience and get channeled back again. It was a reverberatory circuit. It was a feedback loop. And it was fucking astonishing. <laughs> and because I hadn't planned this, yeah. um, I wouldn't have known how to do this. Um, and But something in me obviously did. And when it was over, the audience did of kids who loathed me um, did something they had never done before in my time at that school and would never do again. Not for homecoming queens, not for football heroes, not for returning foreign students from Italy. They surged down to the foot of the stage 
They picked me up off the proscenium. They put me on their shoulders. They carried me out of the auditorium and they carried me up the pathway to the building above in which classes took place. And only then did they let me down. It was astonishing. So when I found the gods inside of us in the world of rock and roll, when I found the ultimate ritual to summon the gods inside of us, the rock and roll concert, I was in pursuit of something that I had experienced from the very center, that I had experienced in the way that Prince experienced it, the way John Mellencamp experienced it, not quite the way Michael Jackson experienced it, because Michael was very different from any of the rest of the performers I worked with. And I worked with some of the most oh, I know. extraordinary performers I know. this world has ever seen. John Mellencamp is beyond amazing. Billy Idol is beyond amazing. Joan Jett is beyond amazing. But John Mellencamp and Prince, fucking goddamn astonishing. Just astonishing. They just blow you away when you see them or saw them That's, they must in concert. And now I knew what they were experiencing. So that gave me a touchstone to the people who would ultimately be my clients. Uh, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, DMC, yeah. yeah, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, Joan Jett, Billy Idol. I, I probably mentioned Billy before, I, but ZZ Top, just a whole mess of them. I read those off to my dad when he the day he was moving me in. He was like, who's coming up on the podcast? I was like, three weeks from now. Having Howard Bloom, and he was like, "Remind me of that," and I went to your Wikipedia and read them off. And my dad, who's a very stoic businessman, went, "Holy shit!" And I was like, "Yeah, I know, right?" right? He's like, "How'd you reach him?" I was like, "Facebook." <laughs> but it's those guys would be, they would be the high priests and priestesses five thousand years ago, right? Because they could tap right. in to that right. god. You got it. That, you got it. Absolutely, the, Atman, the godhead. They right. Yeah. They channeled it. Yes. And so when I was on stage at Park School, uh, I was channeling something that was bigger than I was. Um, and that's what Prince and John Mellencamp have done with every performance, not to mention Billy Idol and Joan Jett. Um, they ch when you see, when I first saw Joan Jett off stage, she was in her manager's office. She was slumped on a chair and she looked as if she were almost dead. She looked like a hollowed out husk. Why? Because Joan Jett only comes alive in the eyes of an audience. Now, whether you and I know it or not, you and I also only come alive in the eyes of an audience. Um, I have a stepson and I used to talk to his mom when I was courting her um, every day. And he would answer the phone and I'd say, Walter, what happened today? And he would say, stuff he couldn't remember what had happened during the day unless his friend paul had come over and if his friend paul had come over he would remember what had happened during the day why he was in contact with another human hmm. being and without that contact our cognitive system goes down no input so all all of us need an audience but to have an audience of between 700 and, and 70,000 people is a whole different kind of experience. And it draws these ecstasies. And these ecstasies do make us part of what seems to be a higher power. And in my, you know, my new book is Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul and power pits of rock and roll. And it is about a search, both the scientific search and an empathic search.
with the gods inside of us. And the gods inside of us are the voices of a subculture. They're the voices of our, we, we hit the age of 11 and a half, 12 and a half and 13, and we are going through a radical change. We are changing from children to fully sexual beings. And it's one of the most confusing mm -hmm. changes in the world. And there is a whole bunch of emotions going on inside of us, like clothes going around in a clothes dryer. Um, and we have no words for them. And we think that we are insane because we think that only we are experiencing these things because we've never heard them expressed in the common culture. And then we go and see Joan Jett and we see the way she has taken over the power instrument, the guitar. She is the one who's the unequivocal leader of the band. When she raises her fist, it means I may be a woman, but I have a right to be. In fact, it's not even I may be a woman. It's I have a right to be, period. It's irrelevant whether I'm a man or a woman. And you see that gesture, and that gesture expresses what you've been feeling that you thought made you insane. And you suddenly realize that you are not alone, that you are a part of a movement, that there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even tens of millions of other people like you. So the artist, the superstar, is often the tongue of a subculture that's searching for its identity. So when you have that out-of-body experience being caught up in something bigger than yourself, yes, you are caught up in something bigger than yourself. You're caught up in the collective identity of this unnamed, previously unnamed subculture. And you become the tongue of that subculture. So when you said a while ago that when you finished uh, How I Accidentally Started the 60s, and it felt like it was as if you had wrote it, it was as if your own thoughts... Well, yes. So that as an author, of course, I want to think that I created something unique. But when you do create something unique, if it catches fire with other people, it becomes the tongue of an experience that up until then they haven't been able to articulate. So superstardom is about giving subcultures permission to exist. It's about helping subcultures discover their identity and expressing the identity of that subculture in new ways. And again, yes, the, the ecstatic experience about being caught up in something higher than yourself, that something is real. Look, there, there are 100 trillion cells in Tommy Kerrigan. Um, each of those cells is capable, in theory, of being totally self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. um, none of those cells has a clue as to what a Tommy Kerrigan is or that there even is such a thing as a Tommy Kerrigan. Um, well, in the same way, we members of an audience have no sense of the larger entity, yeah. identity that we make up, the Tommy Kerrigan-ness of us, yes. um, or the counterculture nature of us, or whatever we want to call it. But we get an idea of that larger emergent personality of the group when we are caught up into something higher than ourselves because that something higher than ourselves is in fact real. It's as real as the Tommy Kerrigan um, that marshals or, or, or which is the product of a hundred trillion unknowing Tommy Kerrigan-ish cells. Um, so we get a sense of something real. At least that's my hypothesis. 
And you'll see all this in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and the Searcher's Soul in the Power Pits of Rock and Roll. But frankly, it's a story of adventures. Remember, um, Edna St. Vincent Lay told me to go out and have extreme adventures. And this book is a book of extreme adventures in the souls of some of the most important pop culture human beings um, of the 1970s, the last 50 years, the 1970s and 1980s. Michael Jackson in particular, because Michael Jackson is the most astonishing person I ever met in my life. Yeah, you, well, you, you met him and you worked with him. I've only ever seen videos of him, but even seeing a moonwalk... You feel like this is what it must have been like to watch Jesus turn water into wine. You're like, <laughs> you see it, and you're like, oh, "What is?" It's just this. It's this moment where it's like that's where you become the true believer in whatever it is, right? Whatever the Aztecs or you know human sacrifice or building the pyramids. You see Michael Jackson start doing, and you can watch the video thirty years later, and you still the breath goes away as you see him yeah. moving. And you're like, the, what? The, it's like raindrops it, it, going up. Well, in a sense, the obligation of the artist is to achieve the impossible. Yeah. Because humans are fascinated when they see the impossible happen. When they saw the first men walking on the moon or when they saw the moonwalk of <laughs> Michael Jackson. And so what does the artist do? Ezra Pound, the poet, mm -hmm. says that the artist is the antenna of society. Now, in, in the body of my seven books, what you'll see is that this is a cosmos exploring her potential. This is a cosmos constantly feeling out new possibilities. Mm -hmm. This is a cosmos constantly reinventing herself. And she does it, among other things, through artists. Because when an artist makes the impossible happen for the first time, it makes that impossible thing possible for other human beings. The best example of that is a guitar or a guitarist that I worked with when I was running, I created a public and artist relations department for Gulf of Western, which was the biggest conglomerate in the world at the time for their 14 record companies. And I had this guitarist named Bill Chinnick and Bill's poor baby, his, he was a nice guy. His songs were totally unmemorable. His vocals were totally unmemorable, but there was something unusual about his guitar work. So one day, Bill told me he was playing in a club in New Jersey. And um, there was a little old man at the very back of the audience. And when the audience left, the little old man came down to the foot of the stage and said, son, how did you do that? Meaning Bill's guitar work. And Bill said, sir, um, I loved the music of Les Paul, the guitar work of Les Paul when I was a kid. So I put Les Paul records in stacks on my turntable. And I sat there for three years trying to become as good at the guitar as Les Paul was. And despite how horrible those three years were, I finally got it. And the little old man said, son, I am Les Paul. Don't you realize I invented multi-tracking? In other words, what... Bill, Bill Chinnick had been listening to was eight Les Pauls. And what Bill Chinnick had taught himself to do. Holy shit. Was, yes, was to do what eight Les Pauls had done. There's another example, and it's in Einstein, Michael Jackson, and me, a search for soul in the power of of rock and roll. And it's um, back around 1954. Every sports physiologist 
in the world knew a simple basic fact. Humans could never beat the four-minute mile. Yep. And then a guy named Roger Bannister, a medical student in London or in England, and his best friend, another medical student in England, decided to analyze every one of his running moves um, and to make sure that every bit of energy went into propelling him forward. And finally, Roger Bannister, after years of study and years of training his running, um, beat the four-minute mile. Well, since then, every major international competitive runner has beat the four-minute mile. 1,800 people have beaten the four-minute mile because the person who does the impossible expands the boundaries of possibility, expands the envelope of possibility for all of humanity. And Michael Jackson was the most remarkable human I ever expected to see. In fact, I never expected to see Michael Jackson because he had been unimaginable in my normal terms. He went so far beyond the bounds. And I try to give you the reality of who and what Michael Jackson really was so that Michael Jackson can do what Roger Bannister did for runners. Um, and what um, uh, Les Paul did for Bill Chinnick and can expand the perceptual envelope. Michael is an expansion of who you are in here, if you only understand him. And he was amazing. He was so close to divinity. He was so close to being divine. I mean, I'm a stone-cold atheist too. But divinity is an experience. Divinity is an emotion. And Michael... He was like an angel walking the face of the earth. He was just beyond, I mean, he was totally accessible. And he was very friendly. But he was beyond anything I had ever imagined imagining. It's what you have described, what, what they show, <clears throat> they make the impossible possible. They drive the wedge, you know, they, they punch the first hole in the dam, and then that allows the whole reservoir to come through. In a lot of ways, I got that from Ram Dass and I got that from your book where it's, I mean, you can make the impossible possible. I mean, I've, I've always felt crazy in what I'm doing. I'm like, who the hell turns down a medical school acceptance, moves home with their parents, makes hoodies above their garage and starts talking to them to a laptop. And then who does that? Now I'm sitting here talking to you. I felt crazy up until I finished your book. And now, I don't know if I feel less crazy, perhaps more so I just feel like, oh, there's another crazy guy out there. Right. But it clearly worked for you. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's like what you talked about with like sexuality. You know, what are these crazy thoughts in my head? No one else is, you know, I'm the dryer with the thoughts going around, but no one else is a dryer. And it's like, everybody is. It's just, it's metal. It's not glass. It's, it's not transparent. Reading your book, it it's kind of... I mean, I would say it's probably a conventional parent's worst nightmare because it's like, no, this is the proof of this is the proof that you can be crazy and make it work. And I read right. your book and I'm like, oh, I'm like, insanity is not a bug. It's a it's right. a luxury. It's a it's a it's a it's an edge. It's an advantageous edge. Right. Well, when I dropped out of Reed College, it terrified my parents. Yeah. Again, there was no such thing as the phrase dropout in those days. There was no word to define what in the world I was doing. And my parents were on a vacation they dreamed of all of their life. They were in Florida at the at the famous Fountain Blue Hotel. But when I called to tell them I was dropping out of school, they dropped everything. 
They got the quickest plane they could to Portland, Oregon, and they put me in a psychiatric institution mm-hmm. for testing. And they put me, they had the institution take me through three days of testing to see if I was still sane. Because when they showed up, here was their kid barefoot, not having worn shoes for six months. In those days, men wear their hair an inch and a half long, and it was called a crew cut. Mm-hmm. And now their son had this big head of fluffy hair, unlike anything anybody had seen on a human, except in Harpo Marx's wigs. And it was the first Jufro, and they were terrified. Um, so I went through the three days of testing, and then I was called into the office of the head of the institution for my final diagnosis. And he said, um, okay, our tests indicate that you are marginally psychotic, that you are marginally delusional. And I, but yet I think you are the sanest person I have ever met. And I wish I could be you. So go in peace, follow your mission. Um, It was amazing. It was just amazing. But the trick is, it's the obligation of all of us to expand the envelope of human possibility. It's the obligation of all of us to wrestle with something that's impossible and to bring it into the realm of the normal. Um, And humanity's been doing this ever since humanity's been here with the invention of the first stone tool 3.1 million years ago. Um, That's our job, and why? Because this is a cosmos in search of her potential, in search of her next possibilities, in search of what, in my books, I call her next supersized surprise. And you and I are feelers. You know how when you lose a contact lens Mm -hmm. on a rug, especially a shag rug. Yes, you spread your fingers out. So each fingertip becomes an antenna in a search engine. And you and I are antennae in a search engine of that kind, working on behalf of a cosmos, constantly attempting to reinvent herself. It, it's, it makes me, it's almost like the trope, right? You know, when you're, when you're high, it's, you see it in all the movies. It's, Oh, you know, you're stuck looking at your hand. Right. Oh, yes. I mean, is this just not the universe? Are we not the hands of the universe? And right now I'm looking at me and I'm going, what is this? It's Howard Bloom. And you're looking at me and you're like, what is this? It's Tommy. But we're just the universe looking at our hands. Just like right. what are these things. Well, uh, two things. First of sure. all, I've got to find a better word for this. But there's a spiritual dimension to the universe from the very get go. And what do I mean by a spiritual dimension? In the very beginning, in the Big Bang, the first quarks, the very first things, quarks precipitate. Quarks are extraordinarily social. A quark cannot live on its own, mm-hmm. period. It needs to gang together with at least one other quark and, and more preferably two other quarks mm-hmm. in order to survive. Now, when you put three quarks together, Aristotle says that if you understand the laws of the tiniest of things, what he calls the elements, you understand everything. Mm -hmm. Well, we understand how quarks work. So when you put three quarks together, it should make three quarks, just three times as much quarkiness, right? It doesn't. It makes either a neutron or a proton, which is something so dramatically different Mm -hmm. from quarkiness that it defies belief. So what the fuck is that? are those qualities we call proton and neutron? 
there's some higher something that arises from the social agglomeration yes. of these three parks. They are there in, uh, they are present in the same way that the emergent personality of a crowd is there at a Joan Jett concert. Yeah. Um, that the emergent personality of those 350 kids at the park school was there until it was expressed by my ridiculous non-dancing um, on stage. So this something or other that's bigger than the sum of its parts, what do we call it? I mean, a spirit? No, because that leads us in the wrong direction. Emergent properties is the common phrase in science. But you got to recognize that emergent properties, one, is supersized surprise because it's just unpredictable from what came before. And uh, two, it is not in the matter. Yeah, It's in the interrelationship between the bits of the matter somehow. There is an implicit personality in any group of two or three. Clarks, at least. Well, it's so. it's... Well, it's it's kind of the same thing with like with an atom, right? Protons, neutrons, electrons, all of them are just yeah. like, infinitesimal. But all of a sudden, you put them in, in each other, and they're in clouds of probability. And all of a sudden, it makes silicon or manganese, right. and it's like, what the right. fuck is that? Well, in the beginning, hydrogen, helium, and lithium. Yeah, yeah, but those it, are the first three. But none of them are even remote to what any of these are, right? You can go from no. Xenon you, if to you uranium. understand a proton and you understand an electron. That does not tell you what an atom no. with a proton and an electron is going to be. It has this amazing emergent property, like this higher spirit jumping out yes. of the nature of the relationship called hydrogen. Same thing is, and in, in, in if you can understand all the atoms, you go, oh, we finally got it down pat. Well, no, no one knows. Well, what if you put 12 of them together and you made some, you know, long chain carbohydrate? And it's like, well, what the right. fuck is that? It's the same thing with the cells. Oh, we understand a cell. It's got a nucleosome right. and a ribosome and a sarcoplasmic reticulum. What happens if you multiply it by 100 trillion? You get Tommy? You get Howard? Yeah. What's that? Oh, right. So why doesn't it? Why can't it happen again? Why can't it just right. jump up again? And, and our job is to make the impossible possible, to expand the envelope with the cosmos can achieve. Because it's going to keep achieving with humans or without humans, but humans are its one of its attempts to find a whole new kind of search engine with which to find its next possibility and bring it into reality. It's, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I told this story to one person, and it was my girlfriend at the time in 2013 when I, I went and interviewed at the Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles. I was rejected. But I went out yeah. there, and I remember I was interviewing it's all these Ivy League kids, and there I am, University of Georgia shirt. And I remember talking to the, the doctor that interviewed me, not the dean, but just one of the professors. We're talking and we're going back and forth, you know, just a bunch of bullshit, small talk. He's making sure I'm not clinically insane. Right. And finally finished. And he goes, any questions? And I said, can I ask you off the record? And he goes, yeah. I go, what are my chances? And he goes, pretty good, but I don't think you should go. And really? I, I asked him what he meant. And he said, I think you need to go out and find something. And he goes, I don't think it's medicine. And That's I, interesting. I took that as the greatest compliment that he was like, you might get in, but he was like, I don't right. think you should. Right. That's amazing, Tommy. It's, it's been eight years. I figure his, his, his identity is nice and anonymous. 
but it's right. that's one thing I've always it's it's you know it's not as it's not as awesome as as the therapist telling you you know you're on the border of psychosis but I think you're sane it's this doctor going you jumped through the hoops you did the you did the flips I don't think this is for you man he didn't tell me what to do but he was right. like I don't think it's for you and to me that was always like it was almost a sort of blessing from one of the, right. you know, our modern day high priests are the doctors. And right. was, he was sort of saying, like, you've made it to the temple, but I don't think it's for you. Right. Like, well, you. he probably did you a favor. The big trick is 100%. to go out and have the adventures. I mean, I was lucky. I landed by total accident in the world of popular culture. Mm -hmm. um, but wait, we only have yeah, two yeah, minutes. I know. I know. We got to wrap it up. I know. It's. Uh, but, but look, in my junior year, so I took poetry very seriously, right? I, these two poems really set me on my path, The Love Song of Jail for Proof Rock and, and Renaissance. And so I was writing a lot of poetry from the time I was 14. And um, I took courses from the poet in residence at NYU. And one day he said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the classroom. Close the door. Sit there. And he pointed at the bowling out chair. I need to talk to you. This is, Tommy, this did not sound good. And um, so I waited until they all left. I closed the door. I sat in the bowling out seat. And he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. Not only are you the editor, but you don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now walk out that door. So I walked out the door looking terribly puzzled. And a kid saw me. The kindness of strangers is astonishing. And he said, you look disturbed about something. Can I help you? And I said, yes, I, I've just been named the editor of the literary magazine. Now, why was I so against being editor of the literary magazine? Because literary magazines are boring. Mm -hmm. They're totally unappetizing. They have these pale blue colors that covers that will put you to sleep. The typefaces on the covers are horrible, monstrous. And if there was an orgy going anywhere in New York City and you took a literary magazine and threw it into the room, you would empty the room in five minutes. <laughs> so this student said, why don't we go down for a cup of coffee? Now, tell me, I didn't grow up with other kids. You know, they wanted to have nothing to do with me in my hometown. So I grew up with lab rats and, and guinea pigs and guppies in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And guinea pigs and guppies don't have rituals like, let's have a cup of coffee. So I really didn't know what that meant. I'd never had that invitation before. So I meekly followed him to a coffee shop. He ordered a cup of coffee. I ordered a glass of water. And he asked me one of the most important questions I've ever been asked in my life. If you could do anything you wanted with this magazine, what would it be? And I said it would be a picture book. So I gathered a staff, a literary staff, and I gathered an art staff. And it was my art staff that would be my out to popular culture. So by accident, the poet in residence at NYU offered me an out from my four grad school fellowships and precisely where I needed to be, the land where the gods are, the land of rock and roll, about which I knew nothing. He gave you, he, he punched open the side of the plane and gave you the, right, the inflatable slide. 
Yes, exactly. And the parachute. Yeah. So it's, it's, that's, yeah. Mr. Bloom, I could talk to you for a thousand hours in a row and I know that you are busy. So I'm going to let you go. I'm going to stop recording. I do have a question to ask you, but I'm going to stop stop recording it. So before that, everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed his book. How I accidentally started the sixties is fucking insane. Highly, highly recommend it. And remember Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, a search for soul, the power of rock and roll above your shoulder. I'll get that. And I I would love to talk to you about that one as well. But for right now, I'll wrap it up and stop recording.